Father, we do pray now that as we turn to your word, you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear directly from you and what you've said here. And we pray that as your spirit does that, our affections for Christ, our thankfulness to him, our dependence on him would grow. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever someone's being foolishly bold or amazingly ignorant, we might say, who do you think you are? And what follows is usually a humiliating experience when suddenly someone realizes who they're talking to. People should know who they're talking to before they so confidently judge others or judge their cultural traditions or long-held beliefs. But oftentimes, it seems like we're all too capable of having way too high a view of ourselves or way too high a view of our opinion and all too ready to sit in judgment of others. This is especially important to realize when we think about our relationship with God and even the Bible. The Bible and the events recorded in it have changed the world. It's shaped our history and its influence on billions of people and the principles by which nations govern are still felt today. So everyone needs to know what they're going to do with the Bible and their disposition to it, how they come to it, especially because of its claims about Jesus. So, we might all ask ourselves, who do I think I am? From the Bible standpoint, that question is best answered by determining who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus is concerned with in our passage today. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 5, verse 17. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 945. 945. And if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers of the chapters, the smaller numbers of the verses. And again, today we're looking at chapter 5, verse 17 through 30. Now, for context... In chapter 1, John the Baptist and his disciples all testify that Jesus is the Messiah. That's God's promised deliverer and king. Then in chapters 2 through 4, Jesus is presented as being able to bring the blessings of God's kingdom into this world. And all who believe in him can enter into that kingdom and enjoy eternal life. Chapter 5 begins a new section that starts dealing with the issues related to Jesus not only being God's promised Messiah, but being equal with God. And therefore, these chapters start to highlight the opposition to Jesus. Not everyone believes or welcomes Jesus. But based on what he says, what he does... And who he is, we should. And in our verses today, Jesus is defending what he does on the basis of who he is. And the implications of what we do with that are eternal. 
So if you're thinking about who you are to judge the Bible or Jesus, who you are and your life before him, here's the main exhortation we want to walk with today. Treat Jesus as the one true God with authority to judge our lives. Treat Jesus as the one true God with authority to judge us, to judge our lives. And if you're taking notes to help you listen and follow along, there are two parts to this in the text. First, honor the Son as God. Honor the Son as God. This is in verses 17 through 23. And second, believe the Son as judge. That's in verses 24 through 30. Believe the Son as judge. So first, honor the Son as God. Look at verse 17. Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Last week in chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who had been crippled for 38 years with these words in verse 8. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Because the man carries his mat on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders take issue with Jesus. Because God's law forbids working on the Sabbath. It's meant to be a day of rest where you worship God by ceasing to work as you normally would the other six days of the week. And in order to keep that law, the Jews came up with an extra set of 39 rules to make sure that no one does any work. You know, forget your occupation. You shouldn't do anything on the Sabbath in order to make sure you keep the Sabbath. Well, carrying this mat isn't this man's occupation for six days out of the week. But since it breaks their rules, they're accusing Jesus of breaking God's law. Well, Jesus responds in verse 17. And the word here is a unique word only found in the context of trials and courtrooms. Jesus isn't just answering a question. They've put him on trial. And he's given his legal defense. He says, my father is still working, and I am working also. Based on Genesis 1, Jews understood that God had entered into his rest after his six days of work and creation. But they also understood that that God wasn't now doing nothing. In fact, God was still working. After our first parents rebelled against God in the garden, God's just judgment fell upon the earth, and death began its reign in the world. And we still see those effects today. It's everything about this world that deep down you and I know shouldn't be. Things like sickness, disease, famine, natural disasters, violence of all kinds, and death itself. But God made a promise from the beginning that one day someone would come born of a woman to reverse the curse of death. And therefore, God continued, though we rebelled against him, he continued to sustain his creation and work his plan of redemption, even after entering into his Sabbath rest. God is still working. 
So as you think about who God is, don't think of him as a great clockmaker in the sky. As if he simply formed the universe, fixed its gears, wound it all up, and then just steps back to let his creation run itself. No, God created and sustains all things. He's intimately involved in his creation, so much so that the psalmist and Jesus tell us that God's providing food for the animals. And if for the animals, how much more for you? Acts 17 verse 28 says that in him we live, move, and have our being. So without God's care from moment to moment throughout history, today doesn't exist. But in fact, he's directing the affairs of history right down to the details of every day. And he's bringing all of it to the day of the Lord. When God says he will both save his people and judge his enemies forever. And Jesus says, my father is still working and I am working also. That's a massive claim with huge implications. You hear what he's saying in light of the whole Bible? If God, my Father, is working His plan of redemption, if He's bringing it to that great day of the Lord, I am working also. Now the Jews know what they heard. Jesus is making Himself equal with God. In their judgment, this is blasphemy. The Bible's clear. There's only one God. And the Jews were committed to that truth. And they know that everyone who sets them up to be like God, like Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar, sets themselves up for severe judgment. In fact, in God's law, blasphemy is worthy of capital punishment. So Jesus is making a huge and very dangerous claim. And if there's no legitimacy to it, we never read about it. When people make small claims that don't matter, or huge outrageous claims with no legitimacy, no one really cares. If I threaten people with, a, with, with uh, starting a nuclear war today, you'll be concerned about me, you'll, you'll, you'll seek to get me some help, but you're not really going to oppose me when you do that. You know, it, it won't make national news if I claim that. It's an illegitimate claim. I can't do that. But when the president makes that claim, people pay attention and everyone hears about it. The whole world hears about it. Well, the Jewish leaders pay attention when Jesus says this. And it gets recorded for us in history. Why? Because he's doing miracles. He's got a modern-day prophet like John the Baptist testifying that he's God's promised Messiah and he's gaining followers. He's not making this claim about being equal with God in a vacuum. So when Jesus says this, you read it, how do you hear it? Is your judgment like theirs? If you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. Please don't treat Jesus' claim like it's no big deal simply because it was made 2,000 years ago. We have eyewitness testimonies of Jesus written down for us in this word. We have solid historical evidence for Jesus' death and resurrection. 
History itself now testifies to the truth of this by the way that thousands of years of cultural practice and influence were suddenly undone and changed in a matter of months for thousands of people. Eventually, those same people would undermine an empire. Jesus is alive, and his divine claim, in verse 17, still stands. So it's on everyone in a huge way to know what to do with Jesus. You either have to oppose him, like these Jewish leaders, or you trust him with your life. But you can't be neutral. As it's been said before, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Because he claimed to be God. So if you're a Christian, you don't live like everyone else who doesn't know God. You live as if Jesus is supreme. And as if he's worthy of your worship and obedience. And so you order your life according to his word. And you prioritize his people and mission regardless of the implications. So, if that's you, do you call him Lord, but only obey him when it's convenient? If obedience to Jesus means holding an unpopular opinion, or if it means missing out on sensual pleasure, or needing to love your enemies and make sacrifices for them? Well, then does he, go on, does he go on trial in the courtroom of your heart at that moment? And judged unworthy of worship in that part of your life? Jesus knows he's on trial with these Jewish leaders. And it's as if John knows that Jesus is on trial with every one of those who reads this gospel. So he records Jesus' defense for us. Look at verse 19. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. The son is only able to do what he sees his father doing. And the father shows the son everything he's doing. So it's not like there's something the father does that the son hasn't seen or doesn't know about. If Jesus does anything, it's because the father does it. Basically, Jesus is eliminating here the possibility from every angle that any action he does or any word he says is somehow out of sync with God the Father. They are one, like Father, like Son. And to be clear, he isn't claiming that they're the same. Uh, The Father is preeminent in these verses still. But the Father and Son are in union. So try to hear these these words in the ears of these Jews here. You've got your law, which makes you feel righteous before God, and it protects your Jewish way of life in in the midst of a culture that's pushing against it. And so it's not just that that Jesus sounds unbelievable here to you, but it's that he doesn't even sound good. 
He's, he's, he's messing with your way of life. And it's not too hard for people to hear Jesus like that today. Jesus may sound offensive to us when he says in verse 14, do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. We can read that and think, that's wrong and unloving. Or like when he condemns today's sexual ethic with all of its lusts and perversions, or condemns storing up treasures on earth and the desire to get rich. And we think, that's wrong, you're not good. Because we believe that in saying those things, he's working against our happiness. But according to Jesus, if that's the way we feel, if that's the way we judge him, we've actually got a problem with God the Father. And according to verse 20, people will be even more amazed with Jesus because the Father will show him greater works than these. What are these greater works? Well, they're the kind of works that the Jews believed only God can do or has the right to do. Look at verse 21. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Just as the Father gives life to the dead, Jesus gives life to the dead. Just as the Father can judge the world, the Son can judge the world. In fact, though the Father, again, is preeminent, He judges no one but gives all judgment to the Son, and He does it for this reason, verse 23, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So while the Father is preeminent in the relationship, He shares all his glory with the Son so that all might honor the Son just as they honor the Father. This is an amazing passage on what we call the Trinity. Church, our worship of the one true God really is the worship of three equally divine persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And just like God the Father and God the Spirit often do in Scripture, there's a focus for us when we gather on the person of Jesus Christ. We worship Him. Are you mindful of this? I think sometimes it can sound weird. It might even uh, feel weird. Because Jesus is a man. He, he, he walked the earth just like you and I are, to, are, are living today. In, in so many ways, he was a person, is a person, just like us. We worship that man. But we worship him because he's more than just an example to us. And he's more than just a good teacher or even a prophet. He is God. Jesus is God. If you're not a Christian... That's important for you to understand. Christianity isn't just a belief system. It's fundamentally about a person that has saved us and given us life in him in such a way that we can know and enjoy him. That's what our worship is all about. God can be known and enjoyed through Jesus. He's God himself. 
He has come to make God known. This is how John begins the gospel that he's written. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, he was with God in the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God, is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. This is why the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. So, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. In fact, read the whole Bible, which according to Luke chapter 24, is all about Jesus. A lot of people think it's just the Gospels that we go to in order to read about Jesus. But if you read the Bible as one story, then you'll find that from the beginning to the end, it's all about a holy and just God full of grace and truth. And Jesus and his cross are at the center of that story. So, some people would, will try to pit the God of the Old Testament against the God of the New. But you really can't do that if you put your Bible together well. In fact, where people reference a God of vengeance in the Old Testament as if to prove that God is different there, I will gladly point to Jesus' very strong warnings in the Gospels. Or the vision that John gives us of Jesus in Revelation. God the Son and God the Father are one. And praise God that we, can, we not only can be confident in knowing what God is like, but we can know Him personally. Not just knowing about Him, but knowing Him. Jesus is a real person. No respectable historian denies that He lived or that He died on a cross. And if you apply the same method that we use to determine all historical facts in history, the resurrection is a historical fact. So logically then, that would set Jesus apart from every person that ever lived. And we should listen to him and believe him. The good news of Christianity is unique because it's a message of salvation based on grace alone. And that message is as unique as the Savior. He's from God. And he is God. You know, there's, a, there's enough in creation to tell everyone in the world that there is a God. Everyone can, should be able to see that from just observing the way this world works. It's order, it's design, it's, it's beauty, it's greatness, it's power. And so it's the responsibility of every human being to do everything they can to, to bite, scratch, and claw in the fight for truth about how to get right with that God that we can see exists. And what Jesus is doing here, clearly in verse 23, is he's making that fight all about faith in him. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You can't know God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 23 says that no one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. All false religions identify themselves by messing with this truth that we're thinking about today. They all do. 
they mess with the person of Jesus. If you make Jesus less than God, you do not honor him as the Father does. Because the Father grants Jesus both the right to give life and to judge it, so that everyone who honors the Son honors the Father as well. And keep in mind, Jesus is talking to religious people here. So, let me just speak to us and ask, how do you honor Jesus if you call yourself by his name, Christian, but seem to be ashamed of that name in public? What place does Jesus really have in your life if his word is neglected or partially obeyed? Who do you really make Jesus out to be when the people that he died for and refers to as his his body on earth play a peripheral role in your life? If you don't honor Jesus as God, then whatever good thing you may want to say about him or good thing that you pretend to do for him will be brought against you on the day of judgment. You see, Jesus started speaking to the Jewish leaders as if he were on trial. But in reality, they're talking to the judge. So don't oppose him. But second, believe him as the judge. Believe the Son as judge. Look at verse 24. Truly, I tell you, Anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, if you haven't noticed, three times in our text today, Jesus says, truly I tell you. Verse 19, 24, and he'll do so again in verse 25. Verse 24 is the central truth statement. That's linking verses 19 through 23 with 25 through 29. Whoever trusts in Jesus has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. So you align yourself with God the Father by hearing the word of Christ and believe what God is saying through him. Jesus is the good news of salvation. We've all sinned. We deserve to to face the wrath of God's judgment. We are, are condemned underneath that judgment. But in his love for us, God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, God's son, has lived the perfect life before him on our behalf. And on the cross, he took, upon, he took upon our sins and died under the judgment of God. Jesus was condemned for us. But God raised him from the dead on the third day, signifying that his wrath has been exalted, exhausted. The, the, the penalty for our sin has been paid in full. And so now, by believing the Son, by believing the gospel, trusting in his work... We will not fall under the judgment of God because Jesus took it for us. And that is true for everyone here who would believe. And so if you do believe that, Jesus, the Son of God, says, There is no condemnation. 
There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You will not fall under judgment. Which is no doubt what he's referring to back in verse 14 when he tells the man who was crippled, do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Death under God's judgment is worse than a lifetime of paralysis. But you don't just have the hope of escaping God's judgment. Jesus says you have eternal life. You have in your possession already passed from death to life. That's resurrection language. Death to life. And yet he's talking to those who are living and believe him. So what's he saying there? Well, that draws us to the link. This is the link to verse 25. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus is talking about two resurrections. A time is coming in the future and one that's here right now. And at this time, or this hour, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Or as verse 24 says, have eternal life and cross from death to life. Jesus is talking about a spiritual resurrection in which sinners under God's condemnation who are dead in their sins put their faith in him and are saved from the wrath to come. But accepted by God right now. Loved by God Right now, no longer under his condemnation. I think this is the first resurrection that John's talking about in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death, the wrath of God that is coming, has no power over them. It's a spiritual resurrection that we experience through faith in Jesus and the work of his spirit. The rest of the New Testament teaches this idea. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. Or think about Paul's argument in Romans 6, where our union with Christ, through our union with Christ, we died to the power of sin and we have been raised to walk in the newness of life and repentance. So if you're a Christian, this is a truth to treasure. I don't know if you realize this, but the Bible teaches that we have crossed over from death into eternal life. Meaning, it's already begun. Eternal life has already Begun in the Christian. We are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. So through the Spirit, we enjoy fellowship with God right now. Through the Spirit, we are becoming more and more like the person that will be for eternity. More and more like Jesus. And through the Spirit's life-giving work, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. This is why even in the midst of sorrow and death in this world, we can have peace, hope, and even joy. 
There's a thankfulness that Christians can give, even through tears. Why? Because even though death is at work all around us, life is at work within us. We know God's love, and we can taste already his glory to come. We can see it by faith. We are witnesses of his gracious work all around us. So even though we will die, yet we will live. Yes, life is hard, and death touches every part of our experience in this world, and so life can be depressing for everyone, including Christians. But Christians should be happy too. We know Jesus, and life is in him. We know the guy who is life. Because, verse 26, just as the Father has life in himself, so also he is granted to the Son to have life in himself. Again, the Jews understand that God is the creator and sustainer of life. He, he gives and takes away. He's able to raise the dead. The Jews believe that. But as God the Son, Jesus can too. Just like in Ezekiel 37, when the prophet Ezekiel sees a, has a vision of this valley of dry bones. And God tells Ezekiel, speak my word to the bones. And the dry bones take on flesh. And when he prophesies God's word again, these dead bodies take on life and breathe. And just like that, Jesus' word brings life to the dead. God's word did that in the valley of dry bones. Jesus says, I can do that too. All who hear me and believe will live. He does what he sees the Father doing. And this is part of the greater work that everyone's about to see in the gospel itself. That message of good news from God to sinners about salvation, it's going to be accomplished by Jesus on the cross. And through faith, that trusting in Jesus, through believing his word, spiritually dead and broken sinners will come to life and be healed. It's what we often sing about in the hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. Now, that doesn't mean that anyone's going to hear Jesus on a megaphone from heaven. He speaks to us by his spirit and through his word. Okay, Hearing Jesus is the same thing as believing the Bible. And that kind of faith is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. We need God to give us ears that hear and eyes that see. That's why we pray so much uh, for the Lord to speak through his word as a church. We pray for it every single Sunday night. We'll do it again tonight. It's why we pray for people to believe and be saved. It's because only Jesus' spirit can make spiritually deaf people hear, the blind see, or the dead alive. And that's not only why we pray for God's spirit to work here in this church, but why we concentrate on hearing from him in his word. I, I don't sit around all week trying to come up with something to say on Sunday. Sometimes hear people talk about pastors work that way. You know, they think, it must be hard to figure out something new to say each week. I'm not trying to do that. 
I'm just going to the next place in the Bible and trying to expose what God has said. We're not trying to come up with gimmicks and programs to compete with the world's uh, compete with the world for people's attentions. Our, our focus is on the Bible. That's where we believe the power is. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope in one sense that makes you feel comfortable. We don't think it's doing any kind of good to fool you into becoming a Christian or put pressure on you to believe. Uh, manipulation and pressure do about as much good as CPR at a funeral. Like, in terms of spiritual good. Only the Spirit can do the real regenerating heart work that we all need him to do. Otherwise, it's just manipulation, and we hate that. We have no secrets. You have access to everything we're going to tell you. So we just aim for a plain ministry driven by God's word because that's what we trust he uses. But this means you should also pray and pay attention to the word. Otherwise, you're never going to know the truth and enjoy the life you're made for. You're setting yourself up to sit in judgment of Jesus. And that's going to leave you with nagging questions, emotional holes that will go unfulfilled because only real faith will do anything about that. So we should pray that we'd hear from Jesus' spirit through God's word because it's not just life, but death that hangs in the balance. Jesus has also been given authority to pass judgment. Verse 27. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. Once again, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man from from Daniel 7. The Son of Man is the one who approaches God's throne with an army of angels around him and is given authority to put down the great rebellion on earth. You don't want to encounter the Son of Man as judge. Everything that's happening today in terms of violence or the sexual mistreatment of children, the lies about men and women and widespread government and corporate corruption all over the world, along with the God-belittling, God-dismissing thoughts and actions of everyday people who raise their fist at God and they say, it's my life, I will seek my glory in the enjoyment of things instead of you. All of that, Jesus will judge. When he comes back with his angels, he's going to squash this great rebellion and put an end to this evil. And in verse 28, Jesus says, Don't be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. So he's not saying, I'm going to judge at the mo- just, just at the moment that I come back. When he comes back, he will judge everyone from all time. Because those in who are in the grave will rise. So he's talking about a second resurrection. This isn't a spiritual resurrection, but a physical one. When Jesus returns at that time, everyone will rise to judgment. And Jesus is quoting from Daniel again. This time from Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. 
where Daniel has seen what the course of history looks like as God's people wait on their king to come and conquer evil. And Daniel's told at that time or at that hour, there will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who led many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is exactly what Jesus is referring to. Now, Daniel's talking about the fall of world kingdoms that will be replaced By the kingdom of God. And when that happens, the final state of people will be fixed forever. And that claim is both amazing and sobering when you consider the context of Daniel. Because Daniel prophesies about things concerning the future. And these coming kingdoms that would all come and go. That ultimately set the pattern for for our world until the very end. And what Daniel says actually does come to pass. He names Babylon and Persia and Greece, and they all came and went. In fact, the historian Josephus tells us that when Alexander the Great conquered Jerusalem, he was brought the book of Daniel in order to read about himself. And Alexander stopped fighting for the day and called for a great feast because he believed that God was on his side. Rome would come next. But Daniel doesn't name Rome because, again, it represents all the kingdoms of the world that would come and go except for the one. God's kingdom. Jesus is quoting Daniel 7, 13 and 12, 1 through 2 as if to say, I am coming as the great king and judge. And when I come, all who hear my voice will come out of the grave, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting condemnation. And friend, just as historical as all of the kingdoms that have come and gone that Daniel prophesied about, just as historical as Babylon, Greece, Rome, so is this day that Jesus is speaking of. It will come. In fact, Jesus says that hour has come and is coming. So you have this spiritual resurrection that believers experience right now in verse 24 and 25. But then there's this second one, a physical one, in which some will come out of the graves who have done good to the resurrection of life. And I don't think that means that we earn our salvation In John's gospel, doing good is almost synonymous with believing in Jesus. Those who believe treat him as God, and therefore they obey his word. So our good works are a demonstration of genuine faith. So if we believe Jesus and cross over from death to life and live by the Spirit, then when Jesus comes again and says, rise, get up, We will have life to the full. We will get up to live in the world that we all know we're created to enjoy. 
Everything that people are begging for and fighting for in this life in order to experience happiness and peace, we will wake up to. Because Jesus is king and God will dwell with us. His glory is going to cover everything in the same way that the water covers the seas. And what that means is that all the blessings of God that we taste on earth and that people are living for, we will enjoy in their fullness apart from the curse of sin. I love how C.S. Lewis describes the children's experience in Aslan's land uh, and, and the magician's nephew. He said that in eating an apple, they knew it was an apple, but it was so good that they wondered if they'd ever had one before. The color was red, but it was so pure and beautiful that they had wondered if they'd ever really seen the color of red. Life will truly be life. We will live in such a way that will make all the suffering of this world not worth comparing to the joys that we'll experience forever. That day is coming. I love the very last words of John Newton. He said, I am still in the land of the dying. I shall be in the land of the living soon. I know many people are afraid of death. And there may be good reason. But it's ironic because we're not yet truly living. But then again, some people are not yet truly dead. Under the just penalty of sin, spiritual rebels one day will only know God's justice and wrath. The mercies that all of us are experiencing in this world will end. So no more breeze on a hot day or a cold drink of water when you're thirsty. No more enjoyment of friends or lovers. All the kindnesses of God that that we experience as people who deserve God's condemnation, all those kindnesses that we take for granted and think that we have a right to, will disappear under judgment. Some people have life to look forward to. Others don't. This really is their best life now. And that's why we evangelize, church. People need to hear and believe the word of Christ. Listen, this isn't all easy to say. But as a loving and faithful church, we can't lose sight of why we're on mission. Jesus is worthy of praise, and people are going to hell. Warnings like this are good and loving. It's why Jesus warned a man who was crippled for 38 years to repent, even after he made him well, because he doesn't want something worse to happen to him. Jesus gives life, and he judges. Something worse stands on the other end of the Son of Man for those who don't trust in him and repent. But life to those who do. And Jesus has proven that he can do this kind of work. Not only when he commands the paralytic to get up and walk. But when he tells Lazarus, come out and the dead man lives. Or when he himself is crucified. And three days later, gets up. The Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus for these things. They don't believe him, they oppose him, and therefore they oppose God. 
Let's conclude with verse 30 here. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, this passage starts in verse 18 with Jesus in the dock on trial. It ends with Jesus on the bench as judge. So, who are you to judge Jesus? Or his word? One of the best days of my life was coming to understand myself as a sinner. I never feel more loved by God and full of life than when I believe his word and humble myself before him as God. That's not always easy. I'm still very much a sinner. But I'm thankful I have a church that I can gather with on a weekly basis to lift up the name of Jesus. With people here that I can confess my sins to. And who remind me of the greatness of Jesus. I'm thankful for this because Jesus has the authority to give life and pass judgment. There's no one we should be more humble before than Jesus. So let's treat him as the one true God with the power to judge and to save. Let's pray. God, we thank you for sending Christ into this world and sending him not just to judge, but to save. And so we lift up his name, we worship him today for his power, and we thank you. And we look forward to his coming kingdom and life with you there. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.